My current business, and as it has been for the last 15 years, has been involved in putting up large contingency prizes for sponsors of promotions so that if at some basketball game you have somebody shooting a difficult sequence of shots for a large amount of money, there's a fair chance that it's Bob's money. So please root against them. <laughs> uh, uh, prior to that, I was a uh, professional bridge player and uh, have played in tournaments for below those many years and either bad luck or lack of skill forced me to go to work for a living. So uh, the topic revolves around attempting to set odds for relatively improbable events that uh, probably you don't have a clue as to what you're doing. But nevertheless, a customer is running a promotion, and it's our job to give them a price to assume the risk that somebody will, in fact, win the large prize. So typically, we're dealing situations where uh, we don't have a sufficient sample space of uh, relevant material to give any historical perspective as to what the odds should be. And I'll uh, give you an example uh, as to why uh, this might apply. For instance, uh, one of the early type uh, contests we were involved with was a contestant uh, would be chosen to uh, sink a series of basketball shots or hit a hockey shot at the intermission of a game. And uh, if we'll stipulate that they're an amateur, unfortunately there's not a large amount of history as to how good amateurs are likely to be at this uh, uh, task. So what we did is we uh, started out by making some assumptions, and we'll start with basketball. And the cornerstone initial assumption was that the average spectator selected from the stands, chances are they're not going to pick Granny to come down and shoot the shot. So automatically we're dealing with somebody who can at least get the ball to the basket. And uh, so we made the assumption that for a free throw, there were 50% to make it. Now, certainly uh, we didn't have any scientific basis of that. And if you'll consider the problem, were we to uh, retain a moderate amount of people to shoot free throws, they'd just get better at shooting free throws, so our stats would be invalidated. What we really needed was 10,000 people to shoot one free throw each and see how they did. That presents logistical difficulties, especially when they call you up at 3 in the afternoon and say we need a quote by 4. 
So our methodology in this case was to say, okay, they're 50 percent to hit a free throw. And if you move further away from the basket, you're involved in three degrees of freedom in shooting the shot. You've got to get the elevation, the azimuth, and apply the right amount of force to the shot. So we used the 2.7 power for no particular reason. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And actually the model that we developed turned out to be historically pretty close to what seemed to happen. The other thing that we have going, which has nothing to do with the odds making of the situation, is that let's suppose we took a cross section, and I want the truth here, if we were to give everybody in the room a chance at the proposition we've got here where we're going to give you $5 million unconditionally guaranteed, or flip a coin with a 50-50 chance of either zero or a billion dollars, even though the expected value of the coin flip is 100 times the expected value of the freebie $5 million, for people of modest resources, I think you'd have a surprising number of takers for the $5 million. Now those in the audience who happen to have $5 million might take a different view of it. But I'm sure you could find a choke price which relates to the utility of the sum being evaluated. So the sponsor, when they budget for something, they have a price that they can afford. Now they usually won't disclose this to us because that might affect our price setting, which again has nothing to do with the statistics and history. But you do have an economic utility consideration that is factored into it, and over and above the economic utility, you have a budgeting process that any time you deviate from the budgeting process, usually there's a certain amount of planning that must go on, and any time you deviate from plan, you need to take a certain amount of time to evaluate what you're doing, and then when you deviate from plan and overstep the budget, the people who concurred initially tend to have remarkably short memories, and the search for a bag holder begins. So the odds are only a small part of the equation, and you can't base the odds on the worst possible case. For instance, on a basketball shooting contest, we would not be able to say, okay, let's have Calvin Murphy, who was a remarkable free throw shooter, or Larry Bird, or some guy who shoots in the 90s, be the case that we're dealing with, because we'd then be priced out of the marketplace. Thank you. Thank you.
So we have to find a zone where the odds we set are high enough to be attractive to the client and low enough to, be, to create an expected value that should yield us a profit. So our, we constantly come back to an assessment of utility to the client, an assessment of the expected value of the prize, and just what the, the deal is worth. Uh, a was in a meeting with uh, an insurer uh, recently who took rather high limits on this type of proposition. And their rationale is that the ability to take a high limit constituted a scarce resource and should be priced as such. So that if a customer wants to put up a million dollar prize, even if we think the expectancy is a penny per trial, if there are a moderate number of trials, they're not going to get it for two cents a trial because it makes no economic sense for us to worry about what can go wrong with the promotion. So as a risk taker and in the process of odds setting, we have to be concerned about the utility of the payment that we receive, all of which has very little to do with any sort of uh, purely academic computation. Several years ago, we were confronted with a proposition where uh, Best Western Hotels and American Express desired to put up a large prize if on the 50th, this the 50th anniversary of Little League Baseball, Nolan Ryan were to pitch a no-hitter. And I leafed through my baseball history books and concluded that Ryan, I believe, was, I think he was, he was either 41 or 42 at the time, and nobody that age had ever pitched a no-hitter. Furthermore, he was moving from the air-conditioned comfort of the Houston Astrodome to the heat of the uh, Texas Rangers Stadium in Arlington, Texas, where 100 degrees would be a cold snap in the summer. And with this in mind, I knew that Ryan would certainly melt down and he had absolutely no chance if we could get by the first two or three weeks in the season of pitching a no-hitter. So it was just a question of how much money I wanted to make on it because it wasn't going to happen. Twice he got into the ninth inning with one man out. <laughs> I would get these phone calls from my insurers because this is a highly visible event. And after they got done with uh, a few things that I'd be hesitant to repeat even here, they would then conclude, well, in addition to that, you're kind of stupid. I hope we survive this one because it'll be the last one we ever do. So one particular instance, uh, I get a phone call. My son was attending school at Texas, and 
It was a Sunday afternoon. I was minding my own business. The phone rings. I pick it up. I don't want to worry you, Pops, but uh, Toronto has all zeros on their line score. And uh, we're going into the ninth inning. So we have Gene Upshaw at bat, who was not a particularly outstanding hitter, followed by two truly dreadful hitters that uh, were standing between me and the wrath of my various insurers. Upshaw, of course, popped out. And now we're down to the good hitter who was batting 200 lifetime and probably having an off year at the time. (laughs) And a guy who really couldn't hit standing between me and oblivion. Fortunately, Nelson Lariano saved me with a uh, nice liner between first and second, only about 12 feet off the ground. The right fielder couldn't possibly get to it. It wasn't going to curve foul. And I said, once again, odds making is a game of skill. (laughs) Uh, Later that year, Lariano had been traded to Seattle. Once again, he was going against Ryan. This time, as the first hitter in the game, he singled. I think he beat out an infield hit. And uh, Ryan set down the next 27 hitters in order. (laughs) I never even thanked the man. (laughs) So we're dealing with a situation where there had been a number of 40-year-old-plus pitchers None of them had thrown a no-hitter. Certainly it's inadequate data. We cobbled together whatever we thought we could. And the other factor is that it's got to be economical for us to make these assessments. So we can't uh, invest large amounts of money establishing that we're right. We have to do a lot of guessing, use a lot of analogy a nice scientific process. In the case of a hockey shot, we used a methodology similar to baseball. In this case, we were using a target. And just to give you an idea what sporting fellows we were, that was three and a quarter inch wide. The puck's a full three inches wide. And an inch and a quarter tall. Now the puck will smoothly fit through this hole, as has been proven to us on numerous occasions, and we've got the claim checks to prove it. So we made the assumption that the average shooter at center ice would be even money to hit the net. And from there, we made some more assumptions on how accurate a shot would have to be to go through this three and a quarter inch hole and calculated a probability. And that's how we did it. Again, it was totally infeasible to have the uh, contestants come out. You know, you get 2,000 people to practice. Now, some events are much more sensitive to the skill of the contestant. For instance, golf hole-in-one is an interesting business because a 150 yards out, it doesn't take much of a golfer to reach the pin. On a field goal kicking contest, if you're using a 45 or a 50 yard kick, 
the vast majority of the population can't kick it that far. So in the case of golf, the difference between a skilled practitioner and an unskilled one is uh, maybe a factor of 15, 20, 50, something manageable. In the case of something like field goal kicking, if they can get it that far, they become a substantial menace to hit it. Now, there was a case once where a guy practiced a little too much and uh, injured his leg in the process, <laughs> so when the game and the time for his kick, he couldn't get it that far, though in practice he looked pretty good. So that can work in your favor. Uh, <laughs> even when you make mistakes, you can get bailed out. Then you have the factor of how real-life people will behave under certain circumstances. And I'm citing an example from the game of bridge where, uh, how many of you play bridge? Moderate amount. How many play hearts? More. So in both bridge and hearts, you have four suits of 52 cards. And in the case of bridge, let's say you have a population where you have to guess or judge what the unseen cards, what the probabilities of the unseen cards are. And this is a, an example uh, that, let's see, called the principle of restricted choice. And the situation is that out of the 13 cards, you're missing four cards, the queen-jack, the uh, three, and the deuce. And you play the ace, and a small one appears, and the queen or jack appears on your left. And at this point, you must judge whether to play the ten the next time and pick up the entire suit, or to play the king and... So you have two cards, the queen and the jack, which are essentially equal. They're not, but for purposes of this problem, they're equal. So a player holding the queen or the jack, it would be, they'd be neutral on which card they played, absent any bias. So the play of one of them creates the presumption that they don't have the other. Since half the time they play both of them, I mean they have both of them, they'll pick one and the other half the time they'll pick the other if they're shuffling them up. Now no matter how biased a player is, they will never pick one of them more than 100% of the time. Consequently, you have a situation where, where you have equivalent decisions to be made and something is functionally equivalent, the existence of one condition or the 
a demonstrable condition that could occur one of two ways will imply that the condition existed as a matter of force rather than as a matter of choice. So you have the type of analysis where you will look at something from a historical standpoint. And where this might come into play is if you have a lottery game and people buy their lottery tickets. Some percentage of the grand prize winners will not claim their prize. And it's not because they don't want the money. It's because they're unaware that they've won. So some percentage of prize winners in non-public focused events are not in fact going to step forward and say, I won. And we've had situations like this in televised bingo games. There was one case where somebody won a half a million dollars and the ticket never materialized. There was another case in a bingo game where the rules of bingo are rather harsh. You either yell bingo or if they call the next ball, too bad, you snooze, you lose. And in this case, a fellow was assisting somebody else with their bingo cards and overlooked the fact that he had a half a million dollars worth of bingo for himself. So perhaps it pays to pay attention. And there is always some slippage factor that affects the odd-setting process that can come into the, uh, uh, the deal. And this next one goes back to the restricted choice. Uh, and I thought the bridge example uh, illustrated that you have a presumption that if something occurs that the uh, there may be some bias if you if you observe certain things happening this comes into play we do a number of uh, contests involving uh, promotional pick sixes pick eights pick tens at horse or dog tracks. And uh, the uh, optimum from our standpoint would be if you had 10 horse fields with all the horses completely evenly matched, but that's not the way it occurs in real life. So if you're doing a pick 10 with a progressive pot on it, where when the pick, well, I'll take a more realistic example, a pick six. And the objective in a pick six is to pick the winners of six straight races. And history teaches you that the pot grows larger. Well, by rule, the pot grows larger when it's not one, because they have a rollover pot to the next day, and it continues to escalate. When the pot grows larger, more people bet.
So it is in the track's best interest that people not win the pick six too frequently, which means that if they're setting up the races and deciding which races to include in the pick sixes, they don't want to have six races that feature a standout horse and seven mules, each carrying 500 pounds. <laughs> so from the standpoint of setting the odds, you can always be a little more liberal with the odds when the sponsor's interests are aligned with yours. That doesn't happen terribly often, but in the, in the racing scenario, it's a very frequent situation because the existence of a progressive pot means that the next day the publicity will get out there that there are eight million dollars in the pot for the pick six and the horse players that didn't even know they were horse players will come out of the hills. The track will be oversold and the track will be deducting their 20 percent rake or probably 22% on exotic from lots of bets instead of a few bets. The way a pick six is operated, the first day at a pick six is not very attractive for the player because it's only the money that's bet that day that is drawn. A similar phenomenon occurs in lotteries where when the prize money gets large, the, uh, the lines to buy tickets grow long. People start commuting across state lines and they buy lots and lots of tickets. So a lottery, of course, is a terrible bet from a player's standpoint because typically on a lotto game, the state will deduct 55% from the uh, collection. But if there's a sizable carryover, from previous pots, then when you factor in the utility of the payoff, probably the one, five, or ten bucks you spend on lottery tickets are not particularly meaningful to you, whereas the 25 million you might win, admittedly somewhat against the odds, might be of some use. Unless, of course, you'd simply turn around and make a bigger foolish bet with it. Uh, in, uh, in this type of game, the desire to, uh, to own the world ultimately works against the gambler because they keep making escalating bets on the assumption they can never lose and sooner or later they get tripped up. So where we come in in a horse racing situation is the track will say, let's guarantee that there will be a minimum of 100,000 in the pool. So we will guarantee the difference between what the pool would be and 100,000 for a fee. Now if the track schedules their races sensibly, very evenly matched, at that point, uh, our action becomes very manageable. Again, if you have three horse races and only one of them can run, 
it becomes a pretty poor proposition. So the case of, a, uh, of an odds-setting process are first and foremost, you've got to identify properly the problem that you're going to work on. Let's suppose, for instance, that uh, you received a uh, full-price movie pass for two in the mail that you could use any time in the next three weeks at any movie of your choice. How many of you would use it? Now, it's not such a good crowd for what I had in mind. <laughs> uh, we do considerable consumer redemption programs where people are given an opportunity at something that has pretty good economic value compared with the goods they're purchasing, and those who utilize them will get a very favorable return on their purchase. Those who don't utilize them, so perhaps the packaged goods manufacturer who's selling a $5 item will end up paying us a quarter for a six, seven, eight buck value on some cases. Probably not a movie ticket, might cost them a little bit more. But our case is very much one of identifying what the problem is. For instance, uh, in games playing, how many chess players are there in the audience? Backgammon players. Go players. Aha, uh -huh. I might have guessed it'd be you. But the, um, you have four games that are, uh, widely played that are undeniably games of skill. Yet, they have, uh, tremendously different skill sets required to be proficient at them. And I certainly can't speak much to go because uh, my experience in the field is very limited. But in, uh, in chess, the, uh, the problem is to solve what amounts to a known problem. And it's to manipulate an array visualize what's going on under various conditions, analyze it, assume your opponent is always making the best move, and go from there. In backgammon, there's a certain amount of a sense of timing that is involved, which can certainly be computed. In bridge, the problems for the most part are relatively trivial, but the critical element is to identify which problem you're working on. Because if you try to solve a problem and you're working on the wrong problem, even a successful solution probably will not produce very good results. So you have a situation where computer software is near world class at chess, is uh, better than the world champion at backgammon, 
and is better than a novice player at bridge, provided you don't get too good a novice. So the problems are much different. They're all difficult. And our problem in setting odds is very much related to correct identification and finding the right analogies because once again we're dealing with much too small a sample space to get a, uh, a good handle most of the time. So uh, according to uh, most of the information I have at my disposal, which uh, probably many of you have uh, better information available, uh, the forecasting of future events and just even the science of probability is of uh, relatively recent, meaning a few hundred years, the understanding of it is uh, is new, and uh, again, it's uh, the first applications that I was aware of was, uh, well, not my own awareness, but uh, the origins, as I'm told, uh, relate to uh, using probability as a tool to settle the outcome of games of chance where the game is not finished yet. So more of a settlement device than anything else, and gradually other applications uh, developed. So you obviously need to be able to compute something. But again, all the computation in the world is not going to do you any good if you're working on the wrong problem. So from the standpoint of most entities in the risk business, which should, for the most, in most cases, be someone like insurance companies, their pricing uh, and their stats are geared to getting what they can as long as it gives them a positive expectancy. Now, of course, uh, they will get into uh, situations where they think they can underwrite at a loss and make it up on investment income. And if they're investing their money wisely and the uh, losses are deferred long enough, uh, perhaps they can. But then if they lose money investing because they either take it down to the track and don't pick too successfully, or uh, the markets turn cruelly against them, then uh, they need to adopt a rational pricing model. And from our standpoint, our pricing and setting of odds is sometimes geared to competitive deals. Now, we will not uh, take a proposition at a known loss, or a known, I don't mean to say known loss, at a an expected loss, simply because we don't do that. But uh, many risk takers will, in fact, uh, go down that uh, trail. So uh, Lloyd's 
being an original underwriter of the coffee houses in London, where the uh, original uh, purpose behind the uh, formation of the syndicates was to deal with uh, risks at sea. And of course, it expanded to cover virtually anything, which is is the way insurance has gone, that uh, they have capital and they will deploy it in any manner seeking to achieve a, uh, a profit. So when Lloyd opened his coffee house, it became the center of world trade insurance and uh, essentially it was a bunch of guys sitting around taking various things into consideration. Uh, pirates, disease, fraud, competency of the crew, weather, and believe me, they didn't really know what they were doing, but their pricing was more in line with the model of all they could get and thinking about it a little bit. So, to a degree, that's what the house does when they're setting probabilities for gaming transactions. And the house might be a racetrack where they just deduct and let the players divide the spoils less a handle or a lottery, or it might be a casino, or it might be an insurance company. But in effect, they're all undertaking a proposition for a price and that the means of setting the price is a combination of computation, uh, history, evaluation of what the uh, public is likely to do. For instance, in blackjack, how many of you visit casinos from time to time to try your luck at blackjack? Everybody? No? And uh, in the game of blackjack, you have a variable odds game that's well established that a skilled player can beat the house by tracking the cards that have been played and varying their bets. However, the game's a very popular game. So the house's strategy is to discourage the skilled players by rules, harassment, limits, whatever, and keeping the game the same because it has a public acceptance. So their objective is to get as many unskilled players playing the game badly so that the odds change in their favor. And this gets back to the art, science, or whatever you want to call it, of establishing odds for events with varying probability. We do, uh, <coughs> here's something that we wouldn't have the uh, foggiest idea of how to approach. It's my understanding that, uh, how many math professors do we have in the audience? <laughs> Has this thing been proved? Is anybody reasonably warm on it? Is it a safe bet for me to bet that can't be proved? 
<laughs> and will you invest in my syndicate? <laughs> okay. So, uh, is there such a prize out there at this stage? Yes. Okay. So the uh, situation is that you're uh, trying to evaluate the probability of somebody doing what has not been done. And you know the tools they have available to them, which is enormous computing horsepower, which is ramping up at a uh, rather high rate. And so perhaps by, but the danger you've got is that if this type of prize is out there, somebody may decide rather than uh, reveal that they have aces wired in the hole in their poker game, they'll wait till somebody sticks up a prize and then step forward and sweep the table. Now that you've got to uh, <coughs> evaluate in the context that most people who make what they consider to be a breakthrough discovery can barely contain themselves and will have an enormous psychological need to take credit for their genius rather than the patience to sit back and wait until their genius can be properly rewarded. Where a sucker like Bob might underwrite a large prize offered for the event. So this would be an example of something that uh, we would find, even with expert advice, to be extremely difficult to come up with an appropriate price for. And uh, a similar uh, example might be uh, the Fermat's last theorem type deal. And uh, if somebody could come up with evidence that Fermat had actually proved it, that might be an interesting proposition, even though I guess it has been solved. What was the guy's name? While. So, as odds makers in filthy commerce, we're involved in a business consideration involving the utility of what we offer, the expectancy of what we offer, the appraisal of what's involved, all of which must be done on relatively limited resources in a relatively short period of time, which means that if we get too far away from something we know a little bit about, we're subject to being sandbagged. And uh, that principle is essentially that if somebody bets you that they can make the jump, jack of diamonds jump out of the deck and squirt cider in your eye, you'd better be prepared for an eye full of cider. And that gets down to what we'll call don't play the other man's game. And you know in the setting of odds, for instance, we do incentive contracts for golfers. Now golfers are particularly good for this sort of thing 
because a clothing manufacturer may, well, first, there's the Tiger Woods effect, which means that all other golfers have much less chance of winning tournaments as long as the Tiger is on the prowl. So it's helped us. But the other thing that takes place in golf is that everybody is out there competing for prize money. They're used to being paid for what they kill. So if a manufacturer of clothing or golf clubs or breakfast cereal puts up an award for somebody, they win a quarter of a million if they won a major, they, and uh, then uh, there's an ample element of a uh, body of history, their opinions as far as what winemakers think of a golfer's probabilities. So we have a basis to, and then our final deal on golf is that if you've got an old golfer, chances are they're not going to be as good next year. And if you've got a young golfer, chances are they're going to be better next year. So we like to go against old golfers that have just come off a hot year a young golfer that's just come off a hot year scares me to death because that may be just a preview of coming attractions. So you're saying that individual golfers, that there are basically insurance policies on their um, performance <coughs> contracts? A manufacturer, a club manufacturer, may have 10 golfers under contract. And they may have $50,000 every time they win a tournament. $10,000, something. And they'll have a stable of golfers, and they'll ask us to accept the risk on the prize money that they've allocated to the golfers, which is over and above any prize money won the tournament, for a fixed fee. And we will attempt to come up with a fee which is somewhat in excess of expectancy. It that is the fine-tuning. This gets into the utility. The manufacturer may be willing to part with $100,000 for his stable of golfers for the year, or a quarter of a million, or whatever it is. And maybe we can get away with charging him 20 30% more than our assessment of expectancy. Of course, our pricing model is most attractive when we've got a difference of opinion, that they think their guys are very good, and that's not our opinion. Now, of course, they could take the view that we're insulting them any time we come in with a price that's acceptable to them, but that's the risk we run. So we have the uh, analogy, we have mathematical modeling, uh, and a number of factors that uh, vary from situation to situation. In consumer redemptions, uh, there's an inherent bias that coupon redemption rates and redemption rates of any incentive tends to decline with time because there are more and more of them out there. People are less, less interested it becomes less of a big deal. So if we've got a situation where the prevailing tide works in our favor, then we can be more aggressive, even though 
we don't know that in this particular situation. An interesting deal is that on a consumer promotion, if you're doing it for one specific brand, the second year of a promotion will generally get more attention than the first year with equal publicity because consumers are conditioned to expect it, they look forward to it, and gee, this was neat, I'm ready for it this time. The third year begins to fall off. So, uh, here's another one. We do something called the big return, which is a favorite of bar owners who are running their sports bar. And, of course, they want to keep people in there drinking as long as possible. And they will offer an incentive to somebody in the house who happens to be around for the second half kickoff if it's a run back for a touchdown. So we're not able to evaluate every game, but the factors if it was a Super Bowl game, we'd consider the playing surface, artificial turf, fast surface, favors a touchdown run back. Uh, the special teams, and if you've got a, a deadly kick, kick return guy, that's part of the equation. If the officials are flag happy, so that they'll issue a speeding ticket on five out of every six returns, that'll help us out. Seldom do we know the officials. And the general scoring in the game, if you were dealing with all kickoffs, a high scoring game, obviously there'll be more kickoffs. So we look at what's happened historically with touchdown returns. Now a funny thing happens. When they move the kickoff line back from the 35 to the 30 yard line, there were more touchdown returns. Why? Well, first there were fewer touchbacks. And the defensive dynamics are a little different. But again, once the defenses adjust to it, it begins to move more in line with what history would be. So the first year they moved it back to the 30 yard line, there were a lot of kickoff returns and gradually it declined. So, we've got a business that is largely based on the, uh, the swag with some real science. And uh, if anybody has any questions at this stage, I'd be happy to uh, take my best shot at responding. Any, uh, yeah, yes? Um, so do baseball teams insure their contracts just like the golfing consortiums do? Baseball teams, we have not done any business in that area. It's a possible field. Uh, they do frequently purchase disability insurance on the athletes. Again, if you get old players, the disability insurance becomes a very risky business because an injury that... Uh, might be career-ending for an old player would uh, be three months of rehab for a younger player. And not just the, there's a tendency to say, well, I'm not going to come back fully from this. Time to call it a day. I've got these big disability payments coming. So close decisions tend to go against you 
if somebody is really on the fence, they, you know, maybe they should quit, maybe they shouldn't. Uh, if they're a younger player, they'll tend to uh, try to fight again. If they're an older player, maybe they'll give it up. For instance, Troy Aikman uh, isn't in. I don't know if anybody has any disability coverage on him, but he had his ninth concussion uh, against the Redskins, got knocked out in the first quarter, didn't do the skins much good, but they got rid of Troy for the game. And there's a constant uh, deal, maybe he should retire. So that uh, uh, creeps into the equation. Yes? Do you think the million dollars in who wants to be a millionaire is insured? And, and what well, it has been. Know? It has been at various times. And uh, the question of the difficulty of the questions uh, has been uh, raised. The underwriting syndicate that undertook the uh, U.S. game yelled foul because the questions were uh, softballs, essential, Or at least that was their contention. Now, of course, I'm... We were not involved in it, and I wasn't, uh, I couldn't really express an opinion as to who shot John, so to speak, but uh, I know that the insurers screamed foul, and the other guys said it's the normal course of business, etc. And that type of game is very difficult for a business such as ours because once the incentive gets clearly biased, toward awarding as many prizes as possible, it, an odds maker is kind of out on a uh, lonely island with no, no fans on the planet. The house has very few people cheering for it. <laughs> Seldom does somebody get out there and attempt a field goal and shank it. And the stadium says, go! <laughs> Why is this legal? <laughs> Why isn't this just betting and therefore okay. illegal? Uh, the, uh, well, first, we'll set aside the issues of the, uh, the bona fide gambling transactions where legalized gambling is involved, because that, and we're dealing with the promotional aspects. Normally, in order for a uh, transaction of that sort to be illegal, if it's a game of chance, there have to be three elements present. And they're prize, chance, and consideration. So that the person who stands to win the prize, if they're furnishing consideration, which usually is monetary, but isn't necessarily restricted to that. And some states have, well, the states have varying laws. So that what is consideration in one state may not be consideration in another. Initially, Florida was of the opinion that if you required somebody to enter via the Internet, that constituted consideration, whereas entering by placing a postage stamp on an envelope did not, or entering by means of making a toll call was consideration even though the call was less than the postage stamp, etc. So the laws are not necessarily consistent or uh, might be fairly difficult to find a logical thread, except that they're responding to some squeaky wheel or complaint. But generally speaking, if a prize is offered, it's a chance contest, and the contestant furnishes consideration for the opportunity to participate, 
then this is considered to be a gambling transaction in most jurisdictions. Now, if the contestant is offered a means of entering without consideration, but they have a means of entering where they can pay and it saves them some time and aggravation, that will quite often pass muster. And then, but you, and so normally in chance promotions, consideration is the element that is knocked out, because clearly if you have no prize, it's of no interest to anybody. And if you have no chance, it's also of no interest if there isn't an element of chance. Now, if it's a skill contest, that again is subject to differing regulatory considerations throughout the country. And that's the nuts and bolts of it. Yes? You talk as if you could be on the sports desk at Las Vegas. It does sound, has that air about it. Do you have a staff that is knowledgeable on football statistics? We have a couple of in-house odds makers, myself being one of them. We also use outside consultants. We have a specialist on redemption considerations of what percentage of coupons get turned in and whether it's a mail-in offer or who the offer is going to. A guy who's very knowledgeable in this area and has a relatively unique, most promotional types are sort of like primitive tribes in that they count one, two, three, very many. And they're not very good at quantifying what's going on. We did identify one fellow who, though he is excellent from a promotional perspective and understanding as to what the public or a subset of the public might feel is an attractive offer. And at the same time, he's able to quantify it. And we've had him on retainer for a number of years. In addition, we have a couple of mathematicians we use when it gets beyond our, we use them both as a sanity check and when we know we're beyond our depth. Now, the danger, of course, is when we think we're within our capabilities that we're not. And one of the mathematicians has the tendency of explaining to me how I can solve the problem for myself. He doesn't get much business. The other guy will just go ahead and solve it for me. And I do eat a certain amount of crow, but then I challenge him to a game of backgammon for his fee, and that avoids most of the discussion. Yes? Two questions. On the issue of whether this is gambling, I guess when I was asked, I thought they were, the person asking it was referring to your relationship with the company. Well, the sponsor is consideration. No, the sponsor is just dealing with indemnification of a prize. They're neutralist to the outcome, so they don't stand to win or lose. They're offering it to the public. So, in effect, their transaction with us simply puts us in their shoes. But it's a bet for which they pay you. Well, it is, but every insurance, every business contract involves some degree of risk transfer. So, to date, 
we've never had a regulator raise that issue. Now, of course, that's until Monday. As a result of this speech, I expect... But if I have to collect, raise a collection for some bail, can I count on certain instances? The second question was whether, on big ones, you lay off the rest. We certainly do. Now, we do absorb a fair amount of risk for our own account because our risk takers, when they lose, like to have somebody share the pain. They don't want the only blood drawn to be theirs. And they feel very intense about that. They just like to see that there's somebody else in the universe out there who's unhappy. And the thought of SCA making a large commission or markup on something while they lose their butts does not appeal to them at all. In fact, they become rather uncivilized about the process. What was your biggest loss? A million pounds on a free lottery game in the United Kingdom. And this game was one conducted by the National Health Service. It was a trust. And it was a 5-49 game. And the idea is if anybody won on their lotto drawing, they would go on television and pick one of five envelopes. And one of the envelopes was worth 50,000 pounds, another 100, another 150, one 200, and one worth a million. It's not quite a uniform distribution, but they had economic concerns. And we had a winner coming up for the TV show. And I decided I would take it upon myself to stuff the envelopes because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody I trusted enough to have that information. So I pulled the office. And I took samples of what envelope out of five they would pick. And I analyzed the results. And I thought about it. And I finally decided I would stuff it in the fifth one. And the day of the TV show comes. And it's held at 7.30 London time, 1.30 Dallas time. 1.30 comes, no phone call. 2, 2.30, 3. Well, obviously, it was a surprise. 4.30, the phone rings. I pick it up. The fellow's name was Jim Holmes, no relationship to Sherlock. And I said, James, what envelope did they pick? I'm feeling very casual. He said, envelope E. I will not repeat what I said at that time. And it turns out the guy had five kids, so he picked the fifth envelope. I could have perhaps done a little better research on the project. And then there was once one of our first million-dollar winners. We had a promotion involving the Bud Bowl. AMPM Minimarts decided to run a deal. Are you familiar with the Bud Bowl? The Bud Bowl is Budweiser. It's a simulated football game tied into a promotion run by Anheuser-Busch. And Budweiser always beats Bud Light in the Bud Bowl, but that's a detail the game's fixed. But in this particular deal, the promotion was a million-dollar prize, and 
AM, PM mini marts wanted to offer an additional milling, if the winning contestant had picked up their entry at AM, PM mini marts. So we determined that AM, PM mini marts would have approximately 3% of the entries for the Bud Bowl. And they bumped it up a little bit because they were doing the promotion. And we charged them a rate somewhat in excess of that. Can I ask how you got that number? I mean, did you have some... Oh, we looked at their market share of Bud and number of outlets and just, we came to that conclusion. In fact, that was relatively, we had them counted up after the fact as sort of a loser's validation. So, the Bud Bowl, and I'm to go, I decided once again I would take the law into my own hands and go to St. Louis to draw the winning envelope. And there's a room full of tubs of mail-in entries as far as the eye can see. And I wander around and I scout and I look and I'll take that one. Tubs roll out, I reach down and seize an envelope, open it up and it's an AM, PM. I've been fired as our contest engineer. And, you know, I opened it up and the guy who won it, his name was Samuel Clements. I said, what a bunch of... So I hoped it was just sort of a wise guy with a gnome de plume, but alas, he did exist. And after days of not answering his phone when the time would have passed, and he would have, on the second to the last day, the sucker answered the phone. Out went another million. I mean, you know, we found out he had a night job, called at night. The man won his prize. He was entitled. He got paid. We always try to smile when we pay off. And then tell our risk takers what a bad luck it was. Anything else? All right. Who are these risk takers? Who are your clients? We use AIG, Swiss Re, as a reinsurer of AIG. Swiss Re has been sort of a fixture with us for many years. We use a few Lloyd syndicates. We've used Berkshire Hathaway on some large cases. They have a very big appetite. They tend to think in terms of charging very high prices for very large risks. Sort of like, unless you've got a million dollars to pay us, don't lose our phone number. Now, most of our contests do not command a million dollar fee, but a few of them do. We don't hang on to that amount. How would they decide whether to take on this risk? What kind of risk? They look at the controls and the odds. For big risks, there is no real market for anything beyond $10 million, unless it's a mathematical game. There just isn't. If it's a bingo game or a keno game or an internet lottery, the risk is very well controlled. And I mean very well controlled. Then they're satisfied that they're getting exactly what they're bargaining for. Then the limits grow quite a bit. But realistically, it's very hard to get a more than $5 million, $10 million on a stretch on something that's not purely computational. 
maybe a totally out of range over redemption risk where it just can't happen. Elvis alive, you could probably get a fairly large limit on it. Large pumpkins, probably not. <laughs> At least based on history. Well, are we done? Well, thank you very much. Enjoy.